0: Listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 24, Krupp Steel Part 7, Gustav and Alfred Krupp, or Vultures Circling Their Carry-On. Today I'm recording from Kursk, Russia, and this episode is brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. In July 1943, the largest tank battle in the history of the world took place, 280 miles west of Moscow. Given where modern warfare is going, there probably won't ever be a tank battle to rival the Battle of Kursk. While Stalingrad was the psychological turning point of the war, some military historians consider Kursk to be the actual military turning point, the point of which was lost to most German and Soviet citizens at the time and was only appreciated at the time by the participants. At this point in World War II, the Nazis were failing in North Africa, the invasion of Italy by the Allies was all but inevitable, and the Reich had lost over 700,000 men at the hands of the Red Army already. The Nazis very badly needed a victory, so they planned to make up for the Russian winter by capturing Kursk, which would have allowed them to reconquer the Ukraine. In the Battle of Kursk, over 8,000 tanks fought to the death along with countless artillery pieces and Katyusha rockets. The first day alone, the Wehrmacht lost 586 tanks, including 90 would be Krupp super tanks, equipped with very large cannons and infrared sights. The following days of combat, the Soviets took out 433 more tanks, the next day, 520 tanks, then 304 tanks. The Tigers are burning, said one Soviet dispatch from the front. By the time the battle ended, the Reich had lost 70,000 soldiers and 3,000 tanks. Entire tank divisions completely eliminated. All across the Russian steppes, Krupp's tanks were destroyed. Essen's incredibly productive industry was no match for the productive forces of the Soviet Union. The best Krupp had to offer had been turned to mangled, flaming wreckage but let's back up a bit and see how Krupp and the Nazis got to this point. One of Hitler's first policies, other than crushing the KPD, the SPD, and the unions, was a massive public works program. To the public, in Germany and abroad, this public works program looked like Hitler was not focusing on rearming, but instead in helping his country rebuild. As you might guess, this was a trick to provide partial cover for his military budget. How was this trick pulled off? Through Dr. Yalmar Schott, our old friend, who knows all the tricks, and who we will definitely talk about in future episodes. Now, this is some boring accounting talk, but bear with me, it's not too difficult. Krupp and the other industrialists were not paid for their weapons in Reichsmarks, which would show on the books, right? They were paying them in MIFO bills which were IOUs from the Metallurgische Forschungsgesellschaft, which is to say the Metallurgical Research Corporation, hence the MIFO. Now, the Metallurgical Research Corporation was a dummy company set up, and it was representing the four major banks in Germany, and two government ministries. These were backed by the Reichsbank. Now, all payments to the Metallurgical Research Corporation would be processed at the Central Bank, where everyone in the chain would be paid without a single dollar or mark appearing on anyone's books or financial statements. Basically, it's like they invented their own currency to pay these companies. Now, the mind is baffled at certain financial transactions, but there you have it. shot, contrived flows of billions and billions in currency, completely hidden off of anyone's books. He did it in 1933, and he did it later, after the war. To an extent, some of the rearmament came from seized funds of the Nazi's political enemies. Hitler wrote a confidential letter in 1936 saying, The central bank has the German market funds of foreigners under its control, almost exclusively reinvested in rearmament bills. Our armaments are thus partly financed from the deposits of our political enemies. Under the Nazis, the German army and navy were told to write up their own budgets. They were literally given blank checks. Krupp's steel production went up from 1.5 million tons a year to 4 million tons per year, and their profit margins went from 2% to 6%. Historians and forensic accountants have estimated that Germany probably spent 91 billion marks on rearming and Krupp's profits after taxes each year passed 100 million marks during this period. Around the same time, Hitler abolished the 8-hour workday and made overtime cheap for employers. Now is a good time to introduce Alfred Krupp von Bohlen und Halbach. He was born in 1907, he was the firstborn of Gustav and Bertha's eight children. For the record, his name is Alfred, spelled differently than Alfred Krupp, his great-grandfather. Alfred studied metallurgy in various technical universities in Munich, Berlin, and Aachen before beginning work with his father, Gustav Krupp. Alfred joined the SS in 1931, making him an early and prominent member. He also joined the National Socialist Flying Corps. In some ways, I think Alfred Krupp is one of the most normal of the various heads of the Krupp family. I guess you could say that Gustav Krupp's very boring blood really cut down on the neuroses and increased the boredom factor. Alfred's hobbies included photography, which he was reportedly bad at, and aviation, which he was reportedly good at. He had expensive hobbies, like a 66-foot yacht, a private jet. He was very into classical music, And I mean, like, recording concerts, that sort of, into classical music. And he was very into fast cars. I think that Alfred's much more relatable than his ancestors. And nobody would probably disagree with me that it's much more relatable to buy a fast car with your millions and millions, I guess, with your billions, than to start running a pedophile ring on an island in Italy but Alfred being the most normal also kind of makes him the most evil. I don't know. We'll get into it. Also kind of makes him the most evil. I don't know. We'll get into it. Apart from the fast cars and airplanes, Alfred lived a pretty quiet life, all things considered. He lived in a small modern house on the grounds of Via Weigel. He did not want to live in the drafty, gigantic, scary mansion. Alfred's drink of choice was white horse scotch, and he chain-smoked camel cigarettes his entire life. And I do mean literally, like, chain-smoking his entire life. Alfred had an independent streak, but not one strong enough to make a full break with his family. Nor did he really want to. With that independent streak, though, he did make something of a break, whether it was his intention to or not. When he was a student in Berlin, Alfred fell in love with the daughter of a Hamburg merchant, Annalise Barr. The problem was, she had been married before, and she had gotten a divorce. Even worse, this woman's sister had married a Jew, and that sister had left to go live in Latin America. Alfred Krupp's mother, Berta Krupp, was horrified. Now remember, this is the same Bertha Krupp who snubbed Hitler, of all things, so standing on social convention was sort of her thing. But Alfred Krupp married this Anneliese Barr in 1937. They had a child in 1938, and for several years they lived on a small house on the grounds of Via Wegel. One servant of the family said, those were the only years I saw Alfred smile and when he was with Frau Annalise, he smiled all the time. The Krupp family was so powerful that marriage to anyone but a princess would have seemed beneath them, and Essen joked about Alfred's wife's background, even though she was upper-middle class. Her family wasn't even, like, disreputable or anything, it's just she was literally not a princess. The problem was that Gustav and Berta rejected her, so all of Essen followed suit, and the split threatened Alfred's inheritance. Alfred Krupp said, I believe I have to follow my great grandfather's will, even though it is a hundred years old. And he was referring to both his grandfather's metaphorical wishes and his literal will, which required that he, Alfred Krupp, run the company, which he couldn't do without his family's blessing. It's all incredibly stupid, but what are you going to do? After four years, Alfred Krupp divorced his wife. Various observers point to this as a very bitter time for Alfred when he became withdrawn into himself, his eyes now colder and his manner more impersonal. Now, a lot of these observations about the family, from Gustav to Alfred, you might be saying, Where are you getting this information? A lot of it comes from Tilo von Vilmoski. Now, he was Gustav's brother-in-law. He had married one of the Krupp daughters, right? This Tilo von Wilmowski, he was a Russian-German aristocrat. To Tilo, it seemed like Alfred Krupp adopted an attitude of ironical sarcasm towards the entire world during this time, even to National Socialism. Alfred Krupp himself said, My life has never depended on me, but on the course of history. And I think you can see some of the weird fatalism that you really... It's almost out of date, right? Like, you see that with, like, monarchs, you know, hundreds of years ago. (laughs) You don't see it as much in the modern era. When the Spanish Civil War broke out, Germany and Italy sent a few troops, but a whole lot of equipment to General Franco's army. The Germans sent them half a billion marks worth of supplies, and sent civilian technicians from Essen to study the new science of mass bombing and the performance of tanks and artillery in the field. Spain was a laboratory, in other words. As a side note, if you've seen Picasso's Guernica, that's the result of mass bombing, which they were in the process of inventing, and it was one of the first times that mass bombing had happened, though it was to become sadly widespread in the years to come. One of the breakaway lessons of the war, of the Spanish Civil War, was the six batteries of 88s, otherwise known as the 8.8 centimeter flak guns, used for anti-aircraft and sometimes anti-tank purposes. Reports coming from Spain praised these guns so much that they were cited as a justification for moving up the readiness state for general war across Europe, among the Nazi leadership. At the same time, Gustav Krupp was becoming a huge kiss-ass to the Nazis, unsurprisingly, as the Nazis had given him everything he ever wanted or needed or asked for. Worse, all Kruppiana, which is to say all Krupp workers, were enrolled in the Nazi Union. In case you're ever wondering what is worse than no union at all, it's a Nazi Union. Gustav Krupp went far beyond just following orders, like for example, He donated 20,000 Reichsmarks to Alfred Rosenberg's Nazi Propaganda Fund overseas. Gustav Krupp also made his sales force an extension of the Nazi spy networks, which, I mean, makes sense because they were already spying for, you know, the Weimar Republic, and before that, the Second Reich. Always a good sign. Hitler liked to get people, liked to force people to sign loyalty oaths. If you're ever being forced to sign a loyalty oath, in any context, you might want to deeply think about what you're doing. Just just another program-to-chill lesson for the day. So, in 1937, Hitler made the Krupps sign a Declaration of Political Attitude, and I quote from it here, "...I hereby declare that I stand by the national socialist conception of the state without any reserve that I have not been active in any way against the interests of the people. I am aware that in case of any expressions or actions of mine in the future, which might be understood as an offense against the National Socialist conception of the state, I must expect, in addition to legal prosecution, my dismissal from the post of Fuhrer of the Economy. More on this oath in the future. I can hear you though, dear listener, asking, But did the Krupps ever disobey the Nazis? Why, they sure did. Because the Nazis wanted Krupp to focus exclusively on making arms and weapons and munitions. The Krupp company refused, and they kept up their non-arms production. In another, more limited case, Gustav Krupp protected a Jewish employee from being fired for a period of time. Just one, though. And when the Nazis finally insisted... Gustav Krupp gave this employee an 8-month severance package, which was more than they were required to give. Let's not get too teary-eyed though, because the Krupp family also turned Essen's small synagogue into a Krupp Company museum, in what I would call an act of blasphemy and bad karma, but of course we're just getting started on that front. Just like with World War I, the Krupp Company received advanced plans for their invasions. They knew many months ahead of time which countries would be invaded and even when. This is not even like debatable or like a conspiracy theory. They definitely knew far ahead of time. When general war broke out, that's when Krupp's profitability went through the roof, and not just because of their weapons production. During the annexation of Austria, Krupp and the Nazis worked out a system. Pretty much half of all expropriated factories and industrial concerns would go to Krupp, and the other half would go to a financial empire being built, I say built, being assembled by Hermann Göring. This system would continue as the Nazis invaded more and more countries. For example, let's talk about the occupation of France and the case of Robert Rothschild. This is one of the cousins of the Rothschild banking family, but he owned a tractor factory in Lyon that the Nazi regime wanted to acquire. Robert was a citizen of Yugoslavia, and when the Nazis invaded, he did not understand the new risks that he was under. The Nazis expropriated the factory and gave it to the Krupp concern, and they operated this factory for the rest of the war. After the seizure of his factory, Robert understood the urgency of leaving Europe, and he tried to escape to Portugal before he was captured in Spain by French authorities who brought him back to Lyon. In Lyon, the Nazis tried to get him to sign more paperwork that would make their acquisition seem more legitimate, but he refused. They sent him to the concentration camp in Drancy, near Paris. Drancy was set up to show people that the cattle cars rolling into Germany did not lead to extermination camps, although of course they did. As part of the ruse, Adolf Eichmann ordered that they mix adults and children together in these cattle cars, and this mixing was happening in Dronsi, and this mixing was to make everything look less like what it was, which is to say sending people to their deaths. Robert Rothschild was on one of the very first trains from Dronsi to Auschwitz. The last 72 hours of his life, he was in a cattle car holding and comforting orphans too small and too young to understand the death's head stormtroopers yelling orders at them. It is believed that he was gassed with those children at Auschwitz, because no record of him, you know, ever surfaced. While his factory, of course, went to Gustav and Alfred Krupp. By 1938, German heavy industry had cleared and banked 5 billion marks. For comparison, there were just 2 billion marks in Germany's, in all of Germany's saving banks combined. Now, it's at this point, like we talked about last episode, that Gustav Krupp starts to go senile. It's impossible to diagnose precisely what type of senility he had, partially because the RAF bombs destroyed his doctor's medical records, but from what people describe, it sounded like a type of dementia. When Nazi Germany declared war on Great Britain, Gustav Krupp, ever the Anglophile, was very upset, and he got it in his head his increasingly senile head, to write two very important letters to help avoid the war. Mind you, he was not completely gone yet. He wrote one letter to a leading British politician, and he said, I don't know whether the gentlemen in Berlin have any idea what it means to be involved with the British Empire, which I mean if you think about the privileged view that Gustav Krupp had to observe geopolitics for decades and decades That statement sounds much more foreboding, you know, if you keep that in mind. Gustav Krupp also wrote a second letter to a man high in the industrial world in the United States. Now, I would kill to know which British politician he wrote to and which U.S. industrialist, and I really want to know what he said to the U.S. industrialist. It could have been senile nonsense, but I believe there was was more to it than that. By 1939, German heavy industry profits hit 12 billion marks. Similar to last episode's discussion about how it can be instructive to figure out where certain key figures were during certain deep events, this week I would like to bring up another thing like that. People often erm about how most conspiracy plots don't hold up, because someone surely would have talked, right? There can't be plots involving over 50 people because surely someone would have spilled the beans or blew the whistle. Leaving aside that there have already been several people blowing the whistle on Krupp misdeeds, we're about to see another one. On the 10th of May 1940, the Wehrmacht invaded Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg, each of which Hitler had previously promised to respect. Yet again, Krupp delivered a would-be superweapon in the form of tanks that were able to carry out Blitzkrieg, an innovative tactic previously unfeasible before advances in diesel engines, stronger and lighter steel, and methamphetamines. The tactic was basically invented hand-in-hand with these developments. The same day, that March 10th, 1940, a Bavarian art dealer named Arthur Ruhmann arrived for a lunch appointment in an exclusive Dusseldorf club. He was meeting with three Ruhr industrialists, which included Alfred Krupp. Ruhmann was there to sell them art. Unfortunately for Ruhmann, the meeting was interrupted by news of the invasions. They turned on the radio, and then the businessmen brought out a giant map. They laid it on the table and started marking and circling on the map. Right there at the Dusseldorf Club, these businessmen started divvying factories amongst themselves. Ruman said they resembled vultures around their carrion, and that he was deeply shaken by the sight of German industrialists planning their pillage and looting. Ruman realized that he was out of place there, and so he asked to leave. Ruman knew that he was not going to make any art deals that day. Roman wouldn't see them until several years later, when he would testify to this story at the Nuremberg trials. Also, for the record, the three businessmen, including Alfred Krupp, were engaging in a war crime doing that, because it is a war crime to seize property. We will get into the details of Krupp war crimes at a later date, on a later episode, to be sure, but... German industry at first tried to make a thin veneer of legality over these expropriations, claiming that they were leasing the factories from their owners. Over time, they got more and more flagrant, and it became more common to just outright expropriate them. Now, at this point in world history, the Geneva Convention had not happened yet, so the most applicable basis by which you can judge war crimes was the Hague Peace Conference of 1899, which Germany signed and agreed to. This peace conference explicitly protected private property, saying, if as a result of war action a belligerent occupies a territory of the adversary, he does not thereby acquire the right to dispose of property in that territory. The economy of the belligerently occupied territory is to be kept intact, just as the inhabitants of the occupied country must not be forced to help the enemy in the engaging of war against their own country or their own country's allies, so must the economic assets of the occupied territory not be used in such a manner. Now, obviously we know how wars actually go, but on paper, this is supposed to apply. Hitler had torpedoed the Versailles Treaty, but he had not publicly denounced the Hague Articles, and everyone knew that. Throughout the Nazi regime, there were tensions between the Wehrmacht and the SS. For various reasons, but one of the major ones was because of the many, many war crimes they were committing. The Wehrmacht, while rarely ever stopping these war crimes, the Wehrmacht did not want to be the ones carrying them out. That doesn't really let them off the hook, but we can't ignore that there were internal tensions that caused many of the ways these things developed. As an example, all things being equal, the Wehrmacht wanted to observe the Hague Conventions, but Hitler gave a speech to justify what was to come, and I quote from it, The war against Russia will be such that it cannot be conducted in a knightly fashion. The struggle is one of ideologies and racial differences and will have to be conducted with unprecedented, unmerciful, and unrelenting harshness. Russia has not participated in the Hague Convention and therefore has no rights under it, By the way, it's not true that Russia not participating in The Hague doesn't mean that they are not protected under it, but nevertheless. This speech was Hitler letting the army know that The Hague's rules would not be observed on the Eastern Front. Ultimately, they would break those rules in the West, but they were much more committed to pretending that they were not breaking them in the West. And the level of savagery was unequal. It was always worse on the Eastern Front. On the Eastern Front, the gloves were off, so to speak. The Nazi regime also made a very important blanket ruling, as they already considered the USSR to be an illegitimate government, and theoretically all private property belonged to the state. Therefore, any claims that they were stealing or expropriating property were void, and anything that the Nazis confiscated would automatically be expropriated for Nazi purposes. The rule of law, essentially, was completely nullified or thrown out on the Eastern Front. This is why I never want to hear anyone talk about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Most people who bring that up do not know what they're talking about. Around this time, Alfred Krupp joined two government organizations that would be established to organize this looting. Alfred Krupp joined the Reich Iron Association and the Reich Coal Association. Around this same time, the Reich began to use slave labor, and the first cases of it involved enslaving Russians and Slavs. The Ukraine was near the top of the list of targets that the Nazis wanted to take from the USSR. In many ways, the Ukraine was central, because it was a major food belt for the Soviet Union It also had iron, coal, and steel factories that in some ways rivaled the Ruhr Valley. In 1941, the long-term goal of the Nazis was to create an independent colonial state in the Ukraine, allied to Germany. But in the short term, all Ukrainian assets would be held by something called the Mining and Foundry Works Company East Incorporated. And guess who ran that? Alfred Krupp. Krupp's company also ran the entirety of the gigantic Molotov works. William Manchester suggested that the Krupps were probably the only people in all of Europe who made money off of Operation Barbarossa. Operation Barbarossa, which is to say the invasion of Russia, the operation wiped out nearly a third of the Red Army by the time it was done. And in the course of Operation Barbarossa, literally half a million Ukrainians were enslaved. Lest we think that the art dealer, mentioned before, was making things up, various Krupp employees have confirmed the existence of a gigantic board of the Ukraine in Alfred's office with red pins denoting factories earmarked for sponsorship in the Mining and Foundry Works Company East. Sort of puts into perspective Pete Judge's map of Afghanistan, doesn't it? This is the era where you could make a serious argument for Gustav and Alfred Krupp together being the most powerful industrialists of all time, albeit through outright theft. They ran an industrial network from Belgium and France all the way into the Ukraine. The Soviets were well aware of Krupp's desire to steal their factories in conjunction with the Nazi invasion. They immediately began a program that seemed like madness, but then again, it was a mad time. The Soviets began to move their heavy industry to the Urals, to the Volga, all the way out in Central Asia and Siberia, in order to escape the reaches of the Luftwaffe and Krupp. You remember when I was joking about uh, when I was joking about the Krupp concern threatening to move because heavy industry rarely moves since it's so heavy. The Soviet Union moved as much of their heavy industry as they could. Absolutely mad. The Soviet Union ultimately moved 283 major industrial enterprises from the Ukraine between June and October. They also moved 136 smaller factories. A journalist for the BBC said that these moves must rank among the most stupendous organizational and human achievements of the Soviet Union during the war. One thing that could not be moved fast enough were the steel factories, which Krupp took possession of, and consequently the Soviets faced steel shortages for the rest of the war. In the Urals, the new tank factories were themselves built out of wood because they could not spare any metal at all. The Germans, sometimes letting their mania for efficiency undermine their own effectiveness, decided to send four million Ukrainians to the west, where they would work in concentration camps rather than keeping them working where they were, in factories in the Ukraine. When the Nazis invaded, there were Ukrainians who welcomed them as liberators, but the Nazis did not reciprocate, and they jailed and killed many of their would-be allies. Let's end the episode with a report from the Wehrmacht, discussing, an intensification of countermeasures, among others, confiscation of grain and property, burning down of houses, Tying down and mishandling of those assembled, forcible abortion of pregnant women. Unquote. The author of the report noted dryly that these measures were ineffective and continued, saying, quote, The population reacts particularly strongly against the forcible separation of mothers from their babies and school children from their families. Unquote. Was there opposition to the rule of the Krups in the Ukraine? Why, yes, there was. During this period, Ukrainian miners became very inefficient. They were practicing work slowdowns, and it's as good a place as any to end the episode with a list of fates that Krupp managers in the Ukraine faced, as if a prophecy of the Battle of Kursk yet to come. One executive was found hanged from a light fixture in his office. A second Krupp executive was killed by cyanide poisoning. And the Ukrainian mistress of a third Krupp executive presented him with a large hot water bottle, which turned out to be a camouflaged landmine. He took it to bed and was blown up. What are the lessons for today? Well, for one thing, in previous episodes, we talked about hypnosis, which can be an invaluable tool to help you break through certain personal blocks, or, you know, it can help people rally to your cause. It doesn't have to be something malignant per se, But with Hitler and the Nazis, of course it was. But apart from that, the Battle of Kursk represented the proof that you can never use hypnosis to get around the cold hard facts of reality, like the USSR's ability to make way more T-34 tanks than anyone thought physically possible, way off in Siberia. Then we got a glimpse of some of the magic that Dr. Yalmar Schott was capable of when he invented MIFO bills, which were able to pay Krupp for weapons without any trace of the funds being pumped through the system. It also helped prevent inflation, by the way. I didn't mention that before. Now, don't think that there are not ways to mask certain types of transactions. There are always ways to hide the cash, at least for a time. Then, we got to meet Alfred Krupp, who seemed like a relatively normal person. Not unlike Adolf Eichmann, perhaps, except rich super rich. Then we saw the case of Robert Rothschild, and in his case we saw how Nazi expropriations worked in the West, which is to say, with a thin veneer of legality that was all but done away with in the East. With the art dealer, we got a vivid depiction of Alfred Krupp and his associates feasting off the industrial riches of Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg, as if they were vultures circling their carrion and whose behavior was confirmed by other crop employees. Finally, the Nazis made the entirety of the Eastern Front a special exception, saying that the Hague's conventions did not apply, and that ranges from how they treated civilians, prisoners of war, all the way to how they expropriated property. This logic, the logic of the Eastern Front, would eventually creep and rot their own war efforts, and it would blow back on them spectacularly. Nor would the Slavs consent to be slaves, starting with the retribution killings of Krupp managers, and coming to a climax with Stalingrad, the Battle of Kursk, and the reconquest of Eastern Europe. Today I used the arms of Krupp, the House of Krupp, and blood and steel. Thank you for listening, dear listener. If you want, check out the Patreon, where I do some bonus episodes if you want additional content. Now I need to be on my way to Monowitz, Poland. See you next episode, and God bless. Гуманы над легой, выходила на берег Катюша, на высокий берег на кругом, на берег Атюша, на высокий берег на кругом, выходила, песню заводила, Раскипнула сисого горла, Про того, которого. Про того, чьи письма перегла. Про того, которого любила, Про того, чьи письма перегла. Он вспомнит девушку простую, Пусть услышит, как она поет, Пусть он землю бережет родную, А любовь Катюша сбережет.